The Gospel of John. We are, quite rightly, up to chapters 13 and 14 this evening. We're entering in that portion of, of John's Gospel uh, referred to uh, normally as the Upper Room Discourse. Um, it covers really chapters 13 through to 17. To be strict, it's kind of the end of chapter 13 through to the end of chapter 17. Um, and it's the, the longest discourse in the New Testament. Uh, it begins in the upper room uh, and it ends pretty much in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we go into chapter 18, they actually move into the Garden of Gethsemane. So, um, so the focus really for tonight's study is going to be the disciples with Jesus in the upper room. Now I believe that it could be argued this is one of the most important foundational passages of scripture for those who would be his disciples. See I was talking to Mike and Jill earlier and I was saying that so far in our study of John's gospel so much of what we've seen has been details of how this happened, how that happened, it fits together this way and John keeps using that phrase in the Greek it's metatauta, it's after these things and it's just a, a narrative of, of really what took place. Now we get to the difficult stuff for us personally, because this is stuff that really challenges us. Uh, and this is, um, uh, it's tough because it starts to question all sorts of things. I think this is one of the most challenging portions of John's Gospel. Chapter 13 then, to start with, we're going to see very much a, an introduction to the Christian life. That's what Jesus is really giving the disciples at this point. Uh, and we're going to start with just the preliminaries. Now that will be the washing of feet. Um, which really lays down the model of servanthood. Um, but also, contained within that, we see a framework for the gospel, uh, and I believe intentionally so. Um, Jesus then exposes Judas. The timing is significant. Uh, it could have been done at any time, but Jesus specifically chooses to do it now. Um, and it's interesting because of what follows. Um, we then have, if you like, a, a master class by Jesus as he's teaching his disciples. Um, but the enrollment for that class is by appointment only. And Judas doesn't have a ticket. So he has to go. And it's quite interesting as we see when we get there. Um, and then we get to, if you like, this the session one. As Jesus really starts to teach the disciples. This is after Judas has gone. This is just family business now. Uh, and Jesus is speaking to his own. Um, and again, we need to keep in context now when this is occurring. We'll, we'll look at that in just a second. Okay, so let's... Um, Actually, just to mention that the actual discourse as such, um, different scholars get different views, but I believe it actually really begins verse 33 of this chapter. Um, so we're kind of seeing a build-up to that now. Uh, and we're going to see the two things that I think primarily come out of this, that Jesus has to accomplish, accomplish the work alone. And that's so important because we can't do anything to add to our salvation. It's all what he's done. Uh, And then secondly, we're going to see this new commandment that's given. This isn't a repetition of something that's old. This is a new commandment. And I believe at this point, Jesus is saying to the disciples, look, everything has got to change. And that's the way it is. That's why there's a challenge here for us, because everything has got to change. If we're to be his disciples, things cannot be the way they used to be. We can't just bring some of the old across and and kind of merge it. Everything has got to change. And that's what we'll, we'll look at as we go through. So let's... Dive straight into chapter 13. Now, to start, we've got something technical, uh, because we're told now before the feast of the Passover. Now, any well-adjusted Bible student will just read on at that point and not get too hung up on it. But there's some details here that I think are quite important. Uh, We'll find uh, in verse 2 in a moment that we're told John gives us this narrative. He says, and supper being ended. Well, they've just had the last supper together. They've celebrated the Passover meal. There's no question about that. But then we're told at the beginning, the opening is, now before the feast of the Passover. 
well, how can they have just celebrated the Passover meal and John tells us it's actually before the Passover even starts? Well, it's fairly easily resolved. Um, have you got my pointer, Mike? Can I just... We looked at this briefly last time. This is um, Passion Week, uh, as, as we often refer to it. Uh, and incidentally, we have actually now reprinted the, the studies on Passion Week, if anybody wants to dig into this in a little more depth. But we, we know Jesus was uh, rose on the third day. Uh, now, you don't have to be too good at maths to realize that before the third day, you would have second day. Before the second day, the first day, before the first day, this is the day of the crucifixion. Okay, And just clearly, we know that the, the first day of the week was the Sunday. Um, and just on that basis alone, we'd have to place the crucifixion on the Thursday. There's actually a whole number of reasons that show that to be the case. Um, now, there's all sorts of various views and ideas. Um, this model is the only one that fits all the scriptures. There's an awful lot of scriptures involved, um, particularly to do with the Feast of Israel and everything else. But um, last time, if you remember, six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany. And we actually looked last time and concluded that John actually uses this phrase, the Passover, to refer not to the feast of Passover or the meal, but actually to the festival of Passover. We'll look at that in just a second. And it's interesting, we find in Numbers 28, uh, we're told that in the 15th day of this month is the feast. Now, that's the feast we refer to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it's referred to as the feast uh, in, in the book of Numbers. And it was pretty much a standard practice amongst the Jews to have the, the meal on the 14th, in, according to, to what they were told to do, is to celebrate the, the deliverance uh, on the night of the Passover in Egypt. Um, but in a sense, the first day off work, if you could term it that way, was the 15th. The 14th was a day when they were allowed to do certain work, okay, uh, and therefore they were allowed to prepare food and do those kind of things. But on the 15th, it was one of uh, three specific feast days, which are detailed for you in Exodus 23 uh, and also Numbers 28 there, uh, when the Jewish males had to present themselves before the temple in Jerusalem uh, with the appropriate sacrifices. So the, the 15th was a specific feast day john refers to it later on we'll see as a high day not high sabbath um so this is where we're dealing tonight this portion here just a, just a couple of other things just to make mention uh, luke 22 verse 1 in um, agreeing with what we just mentioned here um luke there tells us now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh which is called the passover what makes it difficult for us is we've actually got different words that are used interchangeably, different phrases. We've got the first day of unleavened bread. Now, some people mistake that for being the feast of unleavened bread. No, because the first day of unleavened bread would be the 14th. It's the first day they had started a seven-day period where they would not eat any bread with leaven in it. And leaven had to be completely removed from the homes. But we also have the feast of Passover. Both of those are the 14th. Okay, and again, um, Leviticus 23 is another passage that uh, details all of this for you as well. We've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, Leviticus 23 specifically tells us that's the 15th, as does that passage from Numbers 28. Um, but then we also have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, I know that sounds the same as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but actually there's a difference. Because one of them is specifically a feast day on the 15th, but the other one is a festival period really counted from the 15th. And that's the one John refers to as Passover, because we have that, that term, the Passover, which again is the festival period counted from the 15th. Now, if you didn't know that, it becomes extremely confusing, um, but there's plenty of scripture to support it. 
Um, again, the, the feast days, the 14th was the feast of Passover, the specific day. The 15th was the feast of unleavened bread. The whole period of time, and so also that was the high Sabbath, uh, the whole period of time was a feast of unleavened bread. Okay, um, And also uh, the first and last day uh, was specifically set aside as well. Um, and this, this whole period of say, being un- a feast of unleavened bread also referred to as the Passover. But in that context, uh, in fact, um, just look briefly. Um, John, Luke, Mark all refer to the feast or festival, if we would use that term, of unleavened bread beginning on the 15th as the Passover. They all consistently use that term. Okay, John does, as we've seen last time we were looking, uh, Mark 14.1, Luke 22.1, looked a moment ago, and John 13.1 uh, all confirm that. Um, and I think we read this last time. This is from uh, Sir Robert Anderson. Uh, he just makes the comment. Come on, computer. There we go. In the same way that the Feast of Weeks came to be commonly designated Pentecost, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was popularly called the Passover. That title was common to the Supper and the Feast and included both. But the intelligent Jew would never confound the two. And if he spoke emphatically of the Feast of the Passover, he would thereby mark the festival to the exclusion of the Supper. So differentiating between these two things. Okay. So just again, we're now dealing here with this particular uh, event this is where the passover meal occurs and we've just been told that the the meal has we're going to see in a moment the meal has now ended but we're before the feast okay so this is there's no contradiction there's no problem reconciling that um as i say if you want to dig into those details uh, the the study on passion week uh, is available so so let's just look at that again now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Now, uh, again, we've seen that Jesus had been waiting throughout his ministry for this hour. Everything had been put on hold. You know, he wouldn't allow people to, to make him known, to worship him, to make him king before we get to this time. The first time he allows that, and he refers to this hour, is what we refer to as Palm Sunday as he rides in. And that starts the clock ticking for this week. Now, before John tells us what he's going to tell us, he inserts three things. John has a habit of, of putting little parenthetical um, portions into his text. Um, he's saying here, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come, that he should depart out of the world unto his father. And if you were to jump to verse 4, the text continues. But what John does is insert three things now um, that he wants you to know. Okay, three important facts. First of those facts is, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, John tells us this, very important. There's no meaningless details here. Let me just ask you, this is not a trick question, but who does it say Jesus loved? His own. It's really important. I'll tell you why it's important. Because we are victims of a modern gospel message that just says, Jesus loves you. Who does Jesus love? His own. We need to be extremely careful um, because this modern gospel message just goes up to anybody and says, Jesus loves you. Come as you are. You know, you'll have peace, happiness and joy. And what happens is people think, oh, that sounds great. I'll give it a go. And what do they get? Temptations, trials, persecution. Not what we promise them because it's not what the Bible promises them. You see, what the, the modern gospel has done is remove repentance and thus generates false converts. Unless repentance is part of that package. 
then to go and tell somebody Jesus loves you is not biblical. See, what we're told, and we actually saw this uh, the early part of our studies, uh, John 3.36, that if you're not a believer, we're told that the wrath of God abides on you. Now, that's a message that we'll preach. People need to realize the, the plight they're in, the condition they're in, because then to tell them that Jesus loves them and there's a savior makes sense. Sim this morning was talking and he said, you know, if a, a police officer knocks on your door and, uh, you know, you just finished your, your Sunday lunch, he knocks on the door and he says, I've got really good news for you. Somebody has just paid a £25,000 speeding fine on your behalf. You'd be thinking, he's lost it. But if that same officer knocked on your door and said, um, Mr. Vorder, yes, he said, well, well, I've got some very, very serious news. Um, he said, is this your vehicle? Yes. Well, this morning, you were clocked on your way to church, traveling at um, 45 miles an hour in an area that was marked at 15 miles an hour because there was a blind children's convention. And you were caught traveling well in excess of that speed limit. As a result, there's a £25,000 speeding fine that's been levied against you. However, somebody that you don't know stepped in on your behalf and has paid that fine. We wanted to let you know you've been very fortunate. How would I react? I won't think he's nuts. I think, phew. You see, by telling somebody the, the details first, the, putting, letting them know the predicament they're in, and then giving them the good news, it makes the good news make sense. And if we present the gospel to somebody by telling them, Jesus loves you, you can this, 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 and this, but without telling them the, the law of God to convict them of their sin, to tell them they need a savior won't make any sense. And Psalm 19 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul and we need to use the law in our presentation of the gospel see we must never preach the love of god without preaching the justice of god so many people think oh i'm going to go to heaven because god's a good god now god is a good god no question but he's a just god okay let's carry on so that was the first fact that john wants to bring to our attention that jesus loves his own very important Second thing, he says, and supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Very clearly identifying who he's talking about here. And I remember as I was preparing for this, a scripture, and this actually came from the Living Bible. I started when I was very young. The first Bible I had was a Living Bible. Um, okay, it's a paraphrase, not strictly a Bible. It's a commentary on the Bible. Um, but it just uh, this this verse from Ephesians four twenty seven. It says, uh, "For when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil." And if you actually look in the King James or modern translations, uh, you'll find that effectively that is what it's saying. When you're angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. You see, just twenty four hours before this event, this this Last Supper, as we refer to it, Judas had watched a year's wages be poured on Jesus's head as he was anointed by Mary, and he was angry. And in doing so, he'd given a foothold to the devil. And that was the, the parenthesis we'd noted at the beginning of John 12. See, the root of Judas's problem was his love for money. We're told back in John 12 that he kept the bag, but also that he was a thief. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He found Judas on this occasion. But the good news for us is that we're told, 1 John 4, 4, John makes the point there of telling us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
You know, the devil can't just do things to you without you giving a foothold to him. Um, in the notes I've quoted from Proverbs, uh, effectively one of the translations just puts it, a curse causeless will not alight. You know, in other words, unless there's a reason, you're not going to be put under a curse or whatever else. And it's the same here. You know, the devil just can't go around picking who he wants to. And I think one of the reasons John includes that parenthesis at the beginning of chapter 12 is to lay the foundation for what he's just told us, that Satan enters into Judas, not because Satan thought, oh, I'll have him, but because Judas had already made a way. The third fact that John brings to our attention is Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God and carries on. Now, what is John telling us here? Well, you see, Jesus' relationship with his Father gave him the peace and strength to endure everything that was going to happen to him. You see, he knew where he'd come from, he knew where he was going, and he knew what his purpose was. And that, we'll find, is what gave him the security to enable him to give up everything and become a servant. See, so often, um, our lack of security exhibits itself in a kind of um, almost a, a macho, pushy kind of uh, attitude. Uh, and it's a lack of security. When we know our place, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an, an example, and I can only think of a very poor example, but, you know, if you've got a, a mediocre car and somebody pulls up at the light, I, mean, I know this doesn't happen, guys. Ladies, it doesn't happen to you, but guys, you know, just imagine. You pull up at a set of lights and somebody's next to you in a quite a, a flashy car and you think, yeah, yeah, yeah I might, you know, no. You know, and, and you're kind of tempted to, to see what your car could do. It's kind of an insecurity. You're not quite sure. If you pull up in a Ferrari and they pull up in some XR3i, you're not even going to bother trying to compete because you've got that security you know. Okay, it's a very poor analogy, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Jesus knew his, his position. He knew his security and his relationship with his father. And this is what Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, And now John's going to go on and tell us, in verse 4, that which he started off by saying at the beginning. He rises, Jesus rises from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. Now, laying aside his garments, that's getting rid of the the outer garment. He'd have still been wearing a tunic, but it would have been then the apparel of a servant. That's what a servant would have been wearing. Verse 5, And after that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. I believe that hereafter, by the way, is right after the resurrection, when we'll find that Peter's own ministry of servanthood truly begins. I think all of a sudden the pennies drop for Peter at that point, and we'll get to that later in John's Gospel. Verse 8, Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. That's, I don't believe, humility on Peter's part. A lot of people think he's, you know, you know I don't deserve this. I think there's a pride thing there. Sometimes we, we won't let people do things for us. And it, we, we may think it's humility, but actually it's a pride. Jesus answered him, If I wash not thee, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also... My hands and my head. Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needs not, uh, needs not save to wash his feet, but he's clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. Just a comment there. 
the the culture in that day would be that because you've been very often wearing sandals, the roads were dusty. When you got to somebody's house, you'd have your feet washed. It was a kind of a, a kind of customary thing. Um, the rest of you probably didn't need washing, but your feet were dirty, so they did need washing. Um, so that's the whole basis of what's going on here. Peter here, kind of jumping in with both feet, if you pardon the pun, wants to you know go the whole you know well Lord, if you're going to going to wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 just wash your feet. That's nece- that's all that's necessary. And there's there's a, a spiritual side to that as well. Because we're actually told in Scripture to walk by faith, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.7. We talk to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. To walk in love, Ephesians 5.2. We're to walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, Ephesians 5.15. We're told to walk in Him, Colossians 2.6. To walk in wisdom, Colossians 4.5. And we're told to walk worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, uh, to walk in the light, 1 John 1.7, and to walk in truth, uh, 3 John verse 4. And there's more, more to that as well. But the point is, if our walk is right, our way will be cleansed. If we're walking as we should be walking, if our feet are cleansed, the whole of us will be cleansed. Jesus then goes on, verse 11, um, because that little tail bit at the end there, but not all, not all are clean. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said... You are not all clean. John recording this quite a long time after the events. These things have stuck in his mind, obviously. It's interesting that um, uh, Chuck Misler in his commentary uh, makes mention um, that there's ten warnings that are given to Judas through this period of time. Kind of these little comments by Jesus. Uh, Judas would have been present uh, and would have been aware that this was aimed at him. Um, he gets ten warnings. I thought it was interesting because Pharaoh also had ten warnings, and both of them had hardened their hearts. Um, but again, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Pharaoh was given opportunity, and I believe Judas was as well. So after he washed their feet and had taken his garments... And was sat down again. He said unto them, uh, Know ye what I have done to you? Now probably, given the situation that's just occurred with Peter, nobody wants to answer this question because Peter's just kind of jumped in and, you know. Jesus says, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Uh, just as a side note there, the disciples actually never called, called him Jesus but Lord. And Jesus makes this point here that you call me Master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. Um, but an interesting thing here, I mean, I hope you weren't expecting me to bring a, a bowl this evening and some towels and to actually go through some foot washing exercise. I know some churches, some fellowships, when they get to this kind of portion, they will do just that. And I don't want to um, um, stand on anybody's toes or uh, put my foot in it, as it were. But I think that's missing the point somewhat. Uh, see, the point here, Jesus was doing this because he was showing them in that culture what a servant would do. In our culture, we don't do that. So to do, it, it becomes a very odd thing if you want. I mean, if you want to do that, as I say, that's fine. But I think we're missing the point. The point is that Jesus wanted to demonstrate the whole basis of servanthood here. Um, and he says, you know, if I then, your Lord and Master have washed your feet. I have taken on the role of a servant, so you ought to take on the role of a servant for each other. I think this is hugely, hugely important. Let's just carry on and we'll make some more comments in a moment. Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you that a servant is not greater than his Lord, neither 
Is he, uh, he that is sent greater than he that sent him? There's, I remember, I, I'm so grateful for, for my parents and that the Lord has placed me in a, in a, a godly family. Um, and I remember growing up, mum used to uh, always tell us, if you're going upstairs and you see something upstairs, take it with you. You know, carry it upstairs. Don't leave it for someone else. And she used to always say, you know, you know, if there's a pile of washing or something, you know, for, for the bathroom or whatever it was, you know, just if you're going up, take it with you. Because if you don't do it, someone else has got to. And I think that's a great principle for us because it's really the essence of what this is saying here. That, you know, if there's an opportunity for you to do something, you think, oh, no, I won't do that. Somebody else can do that. No, that's, that's missing the point. We should become as servants and we should look for opportunities every day to help each other, to support each other. I was speaking at a church a little while back and uh, uh, I was just talking about the issues of servanthood and I said about, you know, you get to the end of the service and, you know, it's always the same few people that end up packing the chairs away that do this, that do that and everything else. And it was really funny. At the end of that service, everybody was packing the chairs away. And one of the elders came up to me and said, this is incredible, we've never seen it before. And I understand they've not seen it since. (laughs) But, you know, how often do we think, oh, so-and-so will do it, it'll be all right. You know, we walk past something that we could do. You think, well, nah, somebody else can do that, you know. No, we should be there looking, actively looking for opportunities to serve each other, to do as Jesus did here. He didn't need to do it, but he chose to do it, to set an example. This is the way we should be. We should always be looking. And, you know, don't just think there has to be practical things, you know, physical things, because we can encourage people. That can be an element of servanthood as well. To go to somebody and say, look, you know, this was good, that was good, or I really appreciate this, or have you thought about this, or whatever the circumstance. We need to look for every opportunity to serve each other. Okay, move on. In Luke 22, we actually get the background that led to the event that we've just seen there. And uh, Luke tells us, uh, picking up verse 24, he says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be counted the greatest? And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. So that gives us the the kind of background that then Jesus picks up on this dispute that they'd had, and then goes on and does what we've just seen. Now, our standard, uh, one of the best passages of scripture on this issue, we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which, also, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him, uh, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, by you stooping down to serve, you're not lowering yourself and, and losing on position. You become exalted from God's perspective when you serve. And we need to, it's so contrary to the way the world is. Luke 14, 8 to 11, we read there, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, that thou begin, began with shame to take the lowest room. 
But when thou art bidden, go and sit thou in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher, then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself, himself shall be exalted. <clears throat> You know, it's um, sad, but so often we see in church life people that will try and force their way to the top. That's not the way it should be in God's kingdom. You know, we should be there encouraging others, serving others. Romans 12 verse 3 says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, think not of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Uh, Galatians 6, 2 and 3. This is, I, I think this is just such an important verse for any fellowship. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Important scriptures. Okay. Now, there's a, that's the, the obvious lesson on the surface there is about servanthood. But there's a, another lesson here. Uh, and it's about the gospel. Uh, and this is, in a sense, is the object lesson that's kind of uh, sitting there quietly in the background. You see, Jesus laid aside his garments. He became as a servant, coming to those who did not recognize their need to be cleansed. Peter didn't see his need to be cleansed. He didn't understand what Jesus was doing. But they were elevated to his position. You see, they're thinking, well, you, you should be the one that we should be doing this too. The roles are reversed. They are giving this position of, if you like, the master, while he becomes, as it were, the servant. But Jesus takes empty vessels, filling them with water, and then the, wa- uh, sorry, the water then cleanses the walk of all who will humble themselves and allow Jesus to cleanse them. And that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. You know, it's laying aside your rights, okay, becoming as a servant, going to those who don't recognize that need, Okay, and then ultimately God will put them in that position. But we are empty vessels. We're to be filled with the water of the word. And it's that water that will cleanse people. First Corinthians 9 verse 19, we read, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all that I may gain the more. Paul here linking these two ideas, the whole aspect of preaching the gospel and the whole idea of servanthood. If you want to be effective in preaching the gospel... Learn to serve. That is one of the preliminaries that God or Jesus gives us here in this really important chunk of scripture. Okay, it's just a preliminary. If you're going to go anywhere as a disciple for Christ, get this nailed down. Learn to be a servant and you get lots of opportunities to practice. Okay. We carry on the verse 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Well, certainly we know from um, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he talks about the, the joy uh, of seeing those that he brought to the Lord in the presence of the Lord. He talks about the crown of rejoicing. Um, there's such a, a thrill in bringing people to Christ in, in that aspect of serving uh, and seeing the fruit of our labor. Verse 18, he says, I speak not of all of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. See, Jesus had chosen 11 of the 12 that were with him. Judas had been selected to be among the disciples, but he hadn't been chosen. Okay, Because God, as we saw at the end of chapter 2 of John, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. 
and he understood where uh, Judas was at. We, we then have this quote that actually comes from... Um, um, Sorry, uh, Psalm 41, verse 9. Um, and it's dealing with the issue of, of David who was betrayed by his friend and counselor, Ahithophel. Um, he says there, Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That idea is like a donkey kicking, uh, that kind of a sharp and aggressive action. Um, David talks of that pain there. Uh, Jesus quotes that scripture, but interestingly, uh, he actually omits that in whom I trusted. Jesus never trusted Judas. Again, he knew. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Again, Jesus knew the end from the beginning. Or, you know, God knew the end from the beginning. Jesus, obviously, we don't know how much he understood of the complete picture, but clearly he knew enough from the word of God what had been revealed, um, that he knew, and he was telling the disciples that they would believe. Verse 20 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's the, as emphatic as it could be stated. He that receives whoever I send receives me. And he that receives me, sorry, sorry receives him, um, sorry, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. Jesus almost seems to switch from thinking about Judas now, talking about the, you know, I tell you before it come that when it comes to the past, you may believe that I am here, thinking about all that's going to happen now with the disciples. And then he's talking about those that would receive him. And it's almost like he, his mind wanders and just thinks about the, the future and the excitement of, of seeing these multitudes of people come to know him as Savior. But then we go back to the thoughts of Judas. So we kind of have this, that, that wonderful little verse there sandwiched between these two troubling thoughts about Judas. And verse 21 picks that up again. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And the disciples looked one on another, one on another doubting of whom he spoke. Psalm 55 is another psalm that David gives us, particularly verses 12 to 15, that talk of that sorrow of being betrayed. Um, Chuck Mizzler asks the question um, quite often about, you know, what do you think is the most painful sin? And the answer uh, that he gives is gossip, um, being betrayed by people that are close to us. You know, it should be something that is never seen in the church, uh, but we have a very clever way around it because we go, oh, tell me so I can pray for you. And then we're going to tell someone else and tell someone else. And how often do we stop and pray for that person that we said we would pray for? The disciples there are all in this kind of, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray him? I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, when God wants to show you what human nature is like apart from himself, he has to show it you in yourself. If the Spirit of God has given you a vision of what you are apart from the grace of God, and he only does it when his spirit is at work. You know that there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as you know yourself to be in possibility. My grave has been opened, and by God, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Quoting from the book of Romans. God's spirit continually reveals what human nature is like apart from his grace. You know, it's very difficult to get disappointed with people when you know how desperate you could be without the grace of God. And if God has ever shown you what you would be like apart from him, when you look at other people who are struggling or have issues or problems, you have a different perspective. Because you know that you would be there if it were not for his grace. And all those disciples, they're thinking, could it be me? They know that actually that possibility is there with them. 
Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Uh, just interestingly uh, just to note there, um, it was actually John that was, it was right hand, Judas was at his left. Um, and John never mentions himself by name uh, in his gospel. Um, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that's to John, that he should ask uh, who it should be of whom he spoke, so who's going to betray him. And then laying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Before we carry on, there's just an interesting thing here. The left was apparently um, the place of honor, and that's where Judas is sitting. And just, just interestingly, um, out of this um, has come the whole issue between right and left. Um, we have um, dexterous, um, meaning right, uh, and it, it's, it's seen as being something that's good. Sinister is the opposite of dexterous, uh, from, from the Latin. Um, sinister meaning evil, and that's the right and the left. This just idea has crept into culture. Uh, we have duat and gauche, uh, again, from, from French. Um, we have right and left. Uh, duat meaning good, and gauche uh, meaning not good. And these ideas have crept in, and it seems to have come from this thing that, that John was on his right, but Judas was on his left. So just an interesting aside there. Verse 26, Jesus answered, he, uh, answering John's question, Jesus answered, uh, he is it, um, sorry, it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now you think at this point, they're all going, oh, it's you, but they don't get it. And after that sop, Satan indeed him, then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Kind of cornered Judas, really. He hasn't got a choice now. He's kind of into this, this thing. He's already decided this is what he's going to do. But now kind of Jesus, as he does for his ministry, sets the things to his own time frame. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this unto him. For some of them thought that uh, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast. So again, the next day was going to be the feast and they're getting ready for this. Uh, or that he should give something to the poor. So they don't click, they don't understand. They still think Judas is one of them. He then received, uh, having, he then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Now, John says that, and it was indeed night, but there's something much deeper behind that. Uh, Matthew 6, 23 says, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness... How great is that darkness? And how great was that darkness at that time for Judas? Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straight away glorify him. Setting setting us up now for this discourse. Judas is now going out and Jesus is basically saying now this is going to take place you know the the wheels are in motion Judas has now gone out uh, and God is going to be glorified in Christ here Uh, interestingly you can look up your leisure Ephesians 1 9 and 10 we're actually told what the mystery of God's will is and again it's bringing everything together in Christ 2 Corinthians 5 19, another portion that illuminates more of what God's will is. Uh, and it was again through Christ and God is glorified through Christ. Okay, so now we get into this discourse proper. So Judas has left. This is just family now. Okay, and this is where it starts to get a little bit personal for us. Jesus says, little children. It's like kind of pay attention now. Yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go... You cannot come. So now 
I say to you. First thing here is that Jesus must go alone. And again, as I said at the start, you know, we cannot add anything to the work of Christ. He had to do it alone. We can't contribute at all. The disciples couldn't. He had to do this alone. We then go on to this this new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. See, I see here Jesus saying to them, look, everything must be changing for you because now things are going to be different. This is a new commandment. This isn't something that he's drawn from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. This is something new he's saying. As, as my disciples, you're to love one another with this agape or agape love, unconditional love, not based upon what you can see with your eyes, but the way that I love. In 1 John 4, we read, herein is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of payment in full for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us. What a promise. And his love is perfected in us. When we think what God has done, how can we not love each other? Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Kind of Peter's now gone and got back into that, I'm asking a few questions here. Jesus answered him, Whither I go, you cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Indeed, Peter did follow afterwards. Um, we understand from, uh, from tradition that Peter was actually crucified himself. Um, but certainly, Peter went through um, the, the kind of experience that Jesus was just about to go through from a physical perspective. Peter did indeed give his life for the Lord and to, to glorify God. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Well, one of the reasons he couldn't follow was because he had a bit of training to go through first. And Peter sees himself as this kind of strong, courageous character. Jesus says to him, answered him, will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto you. The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. How that must have hurt Peter. You see, in his own strength, Peter was a, a, kind, of a, a kind of a plucky character. He, we find that when he's actually out there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the one that takes a sword and chops off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. So he's not prepared to, to go into battle, and yet when he's not expecting it, as again Chuck Misler um, often comments, you know, we fail not in our weak suit but in our strong suit. And that's exactly what Peter does. And he has to go through this lesson of learning that he cannot rely on his own ability. He's got to learn to rely on God's strength. And that brings us to chapter 14. And we just carry on. There's no chapter breaks, obviously, in the original. But what we're going to find, chapter 14 really is divided into four questions. Um, Peter's asking his question, where are you going? That's kind of the tail end of chapter 13. And it goes into 14. Um, there's the next question, how can we know the way? Uh, and Philip also asks again, show us the Father. And then the last question is, how can you manifest yourself uh, to us and not to the world? So they're the four questions that the disciples ask as Jesus is now going through this incredible teaching. Again, I believe this is really foundational. It's kind of the introduction to the Christian walk. The basis of our walk with the Lord is relationship. And we see here Christ's relationship to the Father, the Father to the Son, our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to the Father and God's relationship to us through his spirit. All those things come in to this chapter. This whole thought about 
Jesus going away. This is what he's just said to them. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You see, for them, if Jesus is going away, what's going to happen? Three years, we've just been following you, or three and a half years, whatever. We've been following you. You're now going away. What do we do? That's their question, and you can understand from their perspective. Before we just move on, though, it's interesting here. I believe this is a very clear declaration of Christ's deity. Look at what Jesus is saying. Just as you can trust God, you can trust me. That's what he's saying. If any man said that, it's blasphemy. Jesus then goes on and says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. This is one of the most important verses um, in the New Testament in terms of understanding how things fit together. Really, really, really important. We just go through, we're not going to spend too long on this, but we just need to just dig into this. Because it answers so many questions. What we see here is this promise that Jesus gives us. Where's he going? He's told us he's going to his father's house. Now the temple is referred to as the father's house, but clearly that's not what Jesus is talking to here. Um, because actually Jesus refers to, tells the Jews that your house is left to you desolate. He kind of he's disowned that at this point. Jesus is going to his father's house, and we understand that is heaven. Now, no scholars, no commentators have any issue or any problem with that, but it is really, really important that that's where Jesus is going. Why is it important? As we see, we're told in heaven there are many dwellings. Okay, it's really encouraging for us. And by the way, the King James says mansions. It's not specifically huge, grandiose buildings. That's not what it's implying. It's just simply dwellings that are, that are fit for us. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22 actually give us the details of what that place will be like. This is also literal. This isn't some figurative thing because Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Now, Jesus wouldn't have said that if this is some kind of figurative kind of, you know, no, no, this is very, Jesus intends them to understand this. He's going somewhere, he's going to prepare a place for them, and he's going to come back and take them to that place. Okay, interestingly enough, we read in Hebrews 9, uh, 10, uh, sorry, Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, um, by faith, referring to Abraham, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, in tents, with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham knew that this world was not what he was really aiming for. He didn't bother. I mean, he built various um, altars and all sorts of things around him, but he only ever remained himself dwelling in tents because he knew there was something so much better. And Jesus tells us that he will come again to take us back there. And that's really, really important because Jesus has gone to heaven. We've made that point already. He's going to take us back there. Now, this is a major problem for people that have various views on what we refer to as end times or the eschatological uh, issues. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for a start, uh, if they come around and, and knock on your door and they start chatting to you, ask them about this verse because Jesus said he's going to take us back to heaven. Well, they believe that only 144,000 get to go. The rest of them don't. They stay on paradise earth. So does that mean Jesus breaks his promise? Oh, well, well then that, this applies just to the disciples. Okay, well, then Jesus broke his promise because he didn't come back and take him to that place. They all died, with the possible exception of John. 
So either way, Jesus didn't fulfill his promise if you have that viewpoint. So this has to be a general promise to the believers that Jesus will at some point come back and take us to that place. People will say, ah, but when it's when you die. When you die. So every time a believer dies, Jesus comes back and takes them back. Jesus will be forever to and froing. It doesn't make any sense. Now just to give you a kind of brief overview of the... the um, Certainly the position that uh, I think you'll find most Calvary chapels will hold. Um, referred to often as the premillennial return of Christ. That Jesus will return before the millennium. And the pre-tribulational rapture. That means that the church will be taken to be with the Lord before this period of tribulation. Now we're somewhere in here waiting for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1.10. At some point, coming up relatively soon, the church is going to be taken to heaven. Okay. And we're told there that we're to put our treasure in heaven, Matthew 6. Um, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, that's 2 Corinthians is the judgment seat of Christ. Um, but 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the rewards and the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. All of that will be dealt with on that occasion. Plenty of scriptures. Uh, there's various ones in the Old Testament as well that refer to this event. Uh, Luke 21:36 talks about Jesus. Uh, when Jesus said to the disciples, uh, pray you be counted worthy to escape all these things. In other words, there's a way of escaping those things that were going to come upon the earth. While we're in heaven, we have this period of tribulation, which is prophesied Daniel 9.27, dealt with in the book of Revelation quite clearly, and various other portions. In fact, most of Isaiah, you'll find bits here, there, and everywhere deal with this. Uh, Isaiah 11 particularly. Um, after that period of time, we then have the second coming, where we're told that Jesus will return with his saints, uh, in Jude, we're told that. Revelation 19, we're told that. Um, and these, these other portions as well. And at that occasion, Zechariah 14.4 tells us that Jesus will set his feet upon the earth, on the Mount of Olives. Okay, So this is our understanding of how the future is then going to play out. When Jesus comes back, he will set up his throne. He will reign on earth in Jerusalem, according to numerous promises, not least Luke 132, uh, where Gabriel promised Mary that he will sit on the throne of David. Jesus has never done that yet. There was That throne of David didn't exist in Jesus' day. It's a political throne. It's a, it's a national throne for the nation of Israel. Jesus has never yet done that. The disciples thought he was going to do that straight away. In fact, if you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's one of the questions they ask him. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, not for you to know the times and the seasons. He doesn't say, no, guys, you've got it all wrong. The church is in Israel. No, he doesn't do that. He says, it's not for you to know the times. Not, it's not going to happen, but... Just not yet. Now, if you adopt any other position than this, we have a real problem with this, these two verses we're looking at. Because when do the church get to go to heaven? You see, from this point on, from the second coming onwards, whether you believe the literal millennium or whatever you believe, the church literally go from the second coming returning with Christ to the new Jerusalem. We don't go to heaven from that point. You see, we often talk about, you know, you ask people, do you think you're going to go to heaven for eternity? Oh, yeah. No, 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 we're not. I, was, I had an interesting conversation with JW recently. And he said, oh, you think you're, you're, going to, you're all going to heaven? So I said, no, 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 only temporarily. We don't go to heaven for eternity. And he was like, so I said, no, no, the new Jerusalem is where we will spend eternity. And the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. 
kind of minor trivial point, but it's, a, it's just an interesting aside if you get into conversation with somebody. But it makes this, this verse interesting because Jesus said he's going to take us back to heaven, to that place he's been preparing, been preparing for us. The only way this scripture can work without being broken is if we are taken to heaven prior to the tribulation and obviously then the second coming when we would come back with Jesus. So uh, there's more details on that in the, the notes so when we get to the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down and so on and so forth. So, okay. Another interesting aside here, um, just briefly go through this. Some of you may be familiar already, and that is the whole concept of a Jewish wedding, uh, referred to as a Kiddushin. Um, it's their word for marriage. Um, the word actually means sanctification. I think that's interesting. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God's will for us is sanctification. And it's interesting that tied with that in that verse in Thessalonians is that we abstain from fornication. Well, if we are to be this chaste virgin bride for Christ, no wonder this is put together. The um, various parts of a Jewish wedding, the the betrothal, uh, the ketubah, is similar to our engagement but more serious. It's a contract between the groom and the bride. uh, And in the contract, the groom actually undertakes to provide and to care for every need of his bride, not only while he's alive, but in the event of his death. Now you think about this in terms of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, um, To mark the contract, the groom and bride drink from a cup of wine. How interesting. Because, oh, because we find, Matthew 26, and he took the cup and gave thanks. And this is, bear in mind, this evening that we're talking about in the upper room. He gave it to them saying, drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. How interesting. There's then an interval when the groom goes away. This is between the, the ketubah and what we call the hoopah. The groom typically uh, would then go back to the father's house to prepare a room for his bride. And typically in the Jewish custom, they would either build on top of the house or at the side of the house and just extend the property, making a room uh, for his bride. That's what the groom goes to do. How interesting in the light of what we've just been reading. Again, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, just as a Jewish groom would do. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Also in this interval, what takes place is that the bride goes through this ritual cleansing process. Um, She goes to the the mikvah, which is this uh, ritual bath, to cleanse herself spiritually and into marriage in a state of complete purity, without spot or blemish, you could add. One part of the ritual includes removing all man-made things, such as jewelry, nail polish, and then being fully immersed in water. What are we to do? We're to cleanse ourselves from all things to do with this world. You know, not to love the world or the things in the world, John tells us. And we are to be fully immersed in the water of the word also, which is that which cleanses us. She's supervised and assisted during this ritual to ensure it's done correctly. We're also assisted during this role. Let's carry on. Ephesians 5, 25-32, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he may present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, um, and so on. 
for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, our helper is the Holy Spirit who helps us in that cleansing process. And we're going to see in a moment, we're told that he shall be with you and in you. So at the appointed time, the groom then, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, would return with a shout and with a blast of a chauffeur, a ram's horn, to claim his bride and to take her back to his father's house, to the place that he prepared. What are we told? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Just interestingly, one really important word there that is often overlooked is there, then we. Paul believed he was going to be part of that group. That means Paul was expecting the rapture at any moment. Just an interesting thing that is often not mentioned. The marriage supper itself, there's this seven-day feast. Okay, um, The uh, wedding blessing then uh, is pronounced um, during this time. Um, we find that for the, for the bride of Christ, we have a seven-year period while the tribulation is going on earth. Uh, and uh, if you look in Revelation 19, 6-9, we actually have our own wedding blessing that's pronounced. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. To her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. There's a lot more in that that we can unpack this evening. Um, But we see this incredible model. I mean, Matthew 22, it seems to be laid out for us again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Well, God is the father. Jesus is the heavenly bridegroom and the church is his bride. Okay, let's carry on. Verse 4. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, We know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's dogmatic, isn't it? It's intolerant. It's very narrow. But you see, truth is not decided upon by majority opinion. There's all sorts of colourful analogies that we can use to, to try and get these points across. Uh, one I heard was that pilots coming in to land the plane and um, the control tower radio up and say, uh, you need to come in on uh, runway five this evening, runway two, your, new, your normal runway is very icy and foggy, uh, so come in on runway five. The pilot just announces over the tannoy to the people in the plane, uh, we've been told to go in on runway five, but um, I don't want to do that, I think it's a bit dogmatic, don't you? A bit intolerant, it's a bit narrow. I'm going to go on runway two, that's what I normally do. Nobody would accept that kind of logic in that kind of situation. And you're just dealing with life here now. Okay? It's a life and death issue, but we're not dealing with eternal issues. When it comes to eternal issues, you know, who are we to start questioning what God has said? And to, to complain, and we've got so many churches now that are watering this down and saying, well, it is a bit harsh, isn't it? You know, that there's, there's lots of different roads. All roads lead to God. Yeah, they do, but they lead to the judgment throne. And we don't really want to be going that route. 
in Eden, Adam enjoyed three benefits. He had communion with God, he knew God, and he was alive spiritually. As a result of the fall, those three are all broken. He's separated from God, plunged into spiritual darkness, and he died spiritually. What Jesus comes to do is to reconcile man to God. He is the way. Illuminate our spiritual condition. He's the truth. He shows us our true selves as we are and our need for a saviour. And he allows us to be born again. He's the life. Those three things that were broken in Eden, as it were, are all dealt with by Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the world can tell us that we're dogmatic, but this is an issue that we need to be dogmatic on. And to suggest that we shouldn't be dogmatic, you know, fundamental principles are not a bad thing. You know, you'll find that any surgeon will employ fundamental principles and you would want them to as well. You know, and and any walk of life. I mean, a football referee is a fundamentalist because they stick to the fundamentals. You know, a a school maths teacher is a fundamentalist because some people say, well, sir, why can't two and two equal five just to be in the spirit of the age? It's ridiculous. It doesn't work. There are fundamentals. That's what they are. Fundamentals are not wrong. Um, we've got various characters like Rick Warren now telling us that the fundamentalism of all types uh, is one of the great enemies of the 21st century. You know, and he says he despises fundamentalism in the church. Well, what does he mean by that? I mean, our fundamentals are that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's our basis. You know, if you move away from that, which people can do if they want to, you create something new. You see, Christianity is what it is. You can't reinvent it. It is what it is. If you change the fundamentals, it becomes something different. And that's what we've got. We've got modern gospels moving away. They are another gospel. Okay. Let's move on then. Jesus said, If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father, and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, then, show us the Father? I just wonder what Philip was thinking as this was was going on. You know, Jesus effectively standing before him saying, If you see me, you've seen the Father. I wonder if the penny's dropping with Philip, who this is. It's interesting that... Um, you probably, uh, some of you are familiar with this already, but there's various titles of God in Scripture. God always presents himself as a way of dealing with our need. We have Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is our provider. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. Uh, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. All of these address our need. Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Sniknu, uh, the Lord is our righteousness. And Jehovah Shema, the Lord is ever-present. They are all dealing with our needs. You see, the Lord presents himself to ways to us to deal with our need. And our greatest need is met in the ultimate revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, Jehovah Shua. Okay, the Lord is our salvation. Jesus says, Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father which dwells in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. 
Wow, verse 12 has caused a lot of problems. Because people say, well, you know, this is Jesus saying that we're going to do greater miracles than Jesus did. Just have a quick look at this, shall we? We find in the book of Acts that the shadow of Peter healed the diseased. Quite impressive. We find that the diseases were cured, demons cast out by handkerchiefs, etc., that Paul had touched. By the word of Peter, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. And uh, uh, Elimas, the sorcerer, was struck blind by the word of Paul. Now, they're quite impressive miracles that are done by the church. But let's just compare with the miracles that Jesus did, some of them. Raising of Lazarus. Well, that kind of tops it, really. Raising of Jairus' daughter. Sight to the man born blind. The woman with the 12-year hemorrhage. And many other. John tells us at the end of his book of the Gospel of John, not enough books to list them all. And then you've got walking on the water, calming the storms. No, the church has not done greater miracles than Jesus. If that was a promise that Jesus was saying, that you will do greater miracles than I have done, then that promise has not come to pass because we've not seen that. Now, there are people that will stand up in their white suits and tell us that we can do these wonderful miracles. And if you come on on a particular day, there's a chap I was speaking recently in Eastbourne and uh, with Ron Matson and a, a chap was uh, talking to me. They, they've come out of the, the Pentecostal church. And one of the reasons was because um, a minister, who I actually know personally, had been presenting this, this, um, this, this teaching, saying about all the miracles we can do. And I know this particular minister outside his church, he's got a, a board saying, expect your miracle today. And they have miracle services that you can go along. And they've obviously pre-booked God for that evening and told him what he's going to do, and he's going to do this. And he's going to... It is ridiculous that we can have the audacity to tell God when he's going to do a miracle and how he's going to do it. It's... Anyway, see, the disciples' miracles, uh, they, they're not greater in power. Some say, but they're greater in variety, it's a greater variety. Well, if there's not enough books to contain all the ones that Jesus did, we can't actually make that claim. Because Jesus could have done just as wide a variety of miracles. What about quantity? Well, we need to remember how this starts. Verily, verily, I say unto you. If Jesus is saying, look, this is really, really important, I want to get this point across... Because there's going to be so many more of you over the next few thousand years, you're going to do more miracles than I have. It's not a particularly important point to try and get across. It's just an obvious statement. If the church is just going to do miracles, then there's no need for the verily, verily I say unto you. Jesus is not saying that. And actually, you know, when was the last time you saw miracles occur like we read in the Gospels? When multitudes were healed, everyone was healed and went away. You know, we we read this... um, throughout the Gospels, that, that there was so much going on. And certainly pro rata in our churches, we do not see that. So we can't claim it on that basis at all. So what is this verse talking about? Well, Jesus does not say that we will do greater miracles. There's a specific word, uh, Simeon, supernatural signs in the Greek. That's not the word Jesus chooses to use here. But greater works. Okay, so what does greater works mean? Well, in greater, the word is mesion. It means in greater degree. So whatever we're going to do, we're going to do in greater degree. Um, and the works is ergon, um, and it just means toil as in effort or occupation. Uh, interestingly enough as well, you should note that, that Jesus says, you're going to do these because I go to my Father. So the reason that we'll be able to do these greater works is because he's going to his Father. So you can actually come to this conclusion by just simply thinking, well, what happened as a result of Jesus going to his Father? Well, we're going to see it in just a moment. The Holy Spirit was sent. So that is obviously the, 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 the thing that causes 
these greater works. And what is it the Holy Spirit comes to do? Well, again, we'll see in a moment. But it's to convict the world of sin. It's to teach us, and etc. We'll see in a moment. But what was Jesus' occupation work? If we go through um, the times that the works or works are mentioned in John's Gospel, uh, we'll find it's always connected with witness. The reason the works were done whether the works were always done from the Father. It wasn't Jesus doing it, it was his Father doing it. Jesus makes that point every time. Um, But the works themselves were a witness. That last one was John 5.20, John 5.36. But I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me. Okay, So the works were not of Jesus but of the Father and they're to be a witness John 10, 25, again, the works, the witness, the whole thing goes on. And it's to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. That was the point of the witness. That's what the works were there to show. John 10, 37, and you, you can track these down. They're all in the notes as well. Um, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, um, though you believe not me, believe the works. Again, the works were there to show that Jesus and the Father were one, that's to show that Jesus is God, effectively. Regardless of people's initial reaction, Jesus points people to the works as the evidence he was God. Okay? Again, so the purpose of works is to witness the fact that Jesus is God. And that is what we will do more abundantly than Jesus did. Because Jesus lived at a specific time in history, in a specific, specific area. The church has gone all around the world declaring that Jesus is God. That is what we have done. And if you, that, that's the only explanation of this that is consistent with how that word is used throughout John's Gospel and fitting this context. And we go on to find verse 13. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So this tie up again. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, of course... This is not just a blank check for us to just go and ask whatever we want, fancy new car, so we'll ask for it in Jesus' name. That's not what it's saying, and we know it's not. Our liberty is conditional if the Father is thereby glorified then. Okay? And James 4.3 tells us, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You know, if we're going to ask, we need to know that that which we're doing is going to glorify the Father. Um, and again, Jesus says, Emptied the room of those that shouldn't be there. Those that are here in the room now are disciples. And it's to those that Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, then I'll do it. Now, a disciple is already qualified, Matthew 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, you're not going to be asking things for yourself, for your own pleasure, for your own purposes. So therefore, this is a very simple promise that Jesus is giving to those that have already committed everything to him anyway. Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Excuse me. And I will pray pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Okay. Just give me a second.
of these as well. What verse do we get to? Verse 16. And I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. There's some very important doctrinal things that come out of that. Firstly, at the time of the rapture, in Second Thessalonians we're told, when the restrainer is removed, then the mystery of iniquity is released. Well, again, the argument, of course, is that if the church and the Holy Spirit are to never be separated... Whoever the restrainer is, because some would argue it's the church, some would argue it's the Holy Spirit. Whenever one goes, the other one's got to go as well. So there's just an interesting argument you can uh, play with there. But this is so, so incredible, because in the Old Testament, we find in Psalm 51, uh, you remember David after his indiscretion with Bathsheba. He prays that the Lord would not take his Holy Spirit from him. Now, David had seen the situation with Saul. Saul had forfeited He's standing before God, and God had taken his spirit away from him. And David pleads with the Lord, don't do that with me. And we're told here we've got this incredible, incredible privilege that the Lord is saying that he should give us another, and that word in the Greek uh, is an alos, which means another of the same kind. In Greeks, you have alos or heteros. Um, one, uh, heteros is another of a different kind, but this is another of the same kind. So the one will be just like Jesus, um, obviously the Holy Spirit. He's to be another comforter. So Jesus obviously is a comforter, but so is the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to abide with us forever. What an incredible privilege. Do you know that even when you mess up, the Lord doesn't take the Holy Spirit from you? That kind of frightens me at times. Because when I read in Scripture that David was a man after God's own heart, and then I think about my life, and David ran that risk of losing the Holy Spirit, and I don't because I've got this promise here in verse 16 of John 14. It's just, it's incredible. Paul does give us a little uh, caveat in um, Corinthians, um, referring to the, the fact that we must not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed. And there's a very real thing. You know, we are the temple of God. I think it's 1 Corinthians 7. Um, that we're the temple of God. You know, and we need to take it very, very seriously. Verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not. Uh, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. It's an incredible, incredible promise. And Jesus says, again, just, you think of the disciples in the upper room as they're going through all this, and they're listening to Jesus say these things, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Was that promise again? Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me, because I live, you shall live also. And that day... Uh, sorry, at that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. This incredible relationship, you know, I said at the beginning of this chapter, um, this relationship that we have uh, with the Father. And as Jesus says there, um, I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Verse 21, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's just... um
Romans 12, verse 1. I think, you know, when you think of the privilege we have of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body the living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, the word in the Greek is logikos, logical service. It is our, our logical service. Oh, it's just, let's back up there. Um, okay, so that's where we got to, right? So, so picking up verse twenty-one, he that has my commandments and keeps them. He it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas said unto him, and John's quick to point out here, this is not Judas Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not to the world? This is the, the last of those questions. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things I have spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So I think Jesus is saying here, look, this is too much for you to absorb in one sitting. And it is for us as well. I, in all honesty, preparing for chapter 14, I found it one of the hardest chapters to go through preparing. There is so much. If you actually dig into all of those things, you can spend a day just going over and over one of those verses. The things that Jesus is saying. The concept of God dwelling in us. Just, it's very hard to get our heads around it. And Jesus says to the disciples, you're not going to take all this in. Not straight away. But he's saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bring these things to your remembrance. And we again need to meditate on these things and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to each of us. Jesus then says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you'd rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before, it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And at that point, it seems that Jesus leaves the upper room with the disciples and they move out onto their journey. And that's like session two of this discourse that Jesus gives to the disciples. Just a very quick summary. Your relationship to God is where it all begins. And that relationship affects your willingness and freedom to serve, going back to what we started talking about this evening. Your knowledge that Christ has done it all. Because there's nothing that we can add. And again, it comes from that relationship with God. Your ability to love this new commandment as God loves Seeing what can't be seen with the eyes. When we look at each other, we see beyond the natural things. We see beyond those things that irritate us about each other. And be honest, there are things. And our certainty regarding the future. Again, that comes from our relationship with God. 
that we know that we have this future, that, that even now Jesus is preparing a place for you. Doesn't that make you feel special? That we, I mean, what it will be like, I don't know. Will, will we get there and we're going to find a door with our own individual name on it? And Jesus has been preparing that place for you. You know, the, everything we see, everything we know now, took six days to create. The place he's been preparing for us, he's been working on for about 2,000 years. What's it going to be like? What a privilege we have. What a privilege. And really, all of this should affect how we live our lives in the present. This whole, I'd encourage you to go back and read through John 14 again and just look at it and just, just think this through. And it, it's so hard to articulate the whole reality that we have this relationship that we are in Christ, that we are in God, and that God is in us. And it's, it's really hard to deal with that for us who are living in, in time now. Um, but the Holy Spirit will help us understand these things and the significance of it. But boy, doesn't it make us think next time we're in that situation when we're out in traffic and somebody cuts us up. God is dwelling in you. How are you going to respond? You know, we, we, we know the depth of our own human nature. So we shouldn't be surprised with what other people are like. That brings us to the end. Let's... Um, close the word of prayer father god we just thank you for your word lord these things are so incredible for us to try and take on board but lord help us teach us through your spirit who you have given to us to be a comforter and to be a teacher to teach us of these things lord may he explain to us in a way that we can understand Lord, as we study your word just illuminate it to us father we want to know we want to fully grasp Lord as best we can in this time now this relationship we can have with you that we can be in Christ that we can be in God and that you would dwell in us and that we have your spirit forever Lord it's it's an awesome privilege and Lord we, we all know as we meet here this evening that we don't deserve it we don't deserve to have someone as tender and as wonderful as your Holy Spirit in us 24-7 So, Lord, please help us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our logical service. When we think of these things, it's only logical, Lord. May it truly affect the way we live, Lord. This chapter 14 particularly is such a challenge. But, Lord, may it not be something we forget. And, Lord, help us to deal with the preliminaries as well, the the servanthood. May we follow your lead. And, Lord, look for opportunities to bless and to serve each other. Lord, again, we just thank you for this time we can spend together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for this great salvation we have. In Jesus' name, amen.